Hey, welcome to episode three of uh, the Sydney Institute of Marine Science uh, podcast, uh, Conversation Currents. Today is my great pleasure to be here with uh, Professor Dave Booth from the uh, from UTS. Dave, welcome and, and uh, thanks for giving up your very valuable time. Thanks for having me. Um, do you want to do a bit of an intro and, and uh, I guess let, let our listeners know, uh, you know, who you are, what you're working on? Yeah, well, I was just sort of contemplating, um, you know, I've been in the biology game for quite a while now and uh, I really didn't get particularly interested in the marine side of things until a, a really big trip in 1971, that's going back in high school, okay. I went up to Papua New Guinea with a friend whose parents lived and worked up there in wildlife and uh, had a trip out to a little bay in Port Moresby Harbour and really that was one of my very first snorkeling trips and just got in, you know, engaged with what was happening there and I think that's where it all kicked off but but otherwise I was interested in anything field biological whether it was uh, um, insects or uh, trapping native mice or lizards or whatever so you know it's always going to be a zoologist it just uh, didn't really uh, crystallize until um, probably university at Sydney Uni in the 70s. Wow so it's a uh, you know uh, 50 plus year uh, journey Dave which uh, I'm sure I'm sure you've seen a lot through that time but you know what sort of you know over the last sort of you know few years what have you been working on what have been the focus areas of research? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm basically a marine fish ecologist, although I did cut my teeth in freshwater fish in Canada um, and a lot of work on estuarine fish. So um, I also spent a number of years doing PhDs and things in the States and the Caribbean and Hawaii. And so um, tropical fish, um, which as it turns out under climate change, we're seeing more and more down in Sydney. Wow. And, you know, that's, a, that's actually a really interesting you know, question. You know, I, I, there's a quote that... Um, I don't like to, to, you know, go and use unvalidated, you know, quotes all the time, but, but there's one that has been really powerful. I use it a lot and it has come from you, so we can validate it right now. Um, Sydney's home to about, is it 600 different unique species of fish? Yeah, quite amazing. And the Australian Museum keeps the, keeps the record, but I, uh, wrote a little paper a number of years ago, um, using their data and it was only about 550 back then. Um, and then I just compared that with other regions of the world, for instance, Europe, which has fewer fish around the entire coast of Europe. And so it really does you know, bring into focus what a special place Sydney is. Yeah, just that diversity. Um, and I guess you know, what, what you, you sort of mentioned, we're seeing more and more sort of tropical you know, fish in, in, in and around Sydney you know, through, I guess, you know, um, rising ocean temperature. You know, what are some of the fish that you know, people are out there snorkeling or that they may, they may see that, you know, 50 years ago they would have been less likely to see? Yeah, well, luckily there's still the old favourites, the brim, the flathead, the snapper, the, the scad, the yellowtail and that sort of stuff. But uh, we started really fairly closely monitoring these tropical fish. This is before Nemo, by the way, um, in about 2001. And so, yeah, we've been going about 23 years now on this long-term monitoring. And uh, yeah, I mean, the numbers of tropicals have risen quite considerably surgeon fish you know we've seen dory around um dory from uh, nemo fame so pallet surgeon fish uh, has appeared uh and on top of that we're also seeing corals that weren't here before so we're, we're tropicalizing quite rapidly for better or worse yeah well, I'd say, you know, for, for people who are listening to this and they're not aware you know the institute is located uh Chatter bay it's a really beautiful part of the harbor and i think a really special part of the harbor but Part of our facilities here, we've got a uh, we've got a wharf and we've got a boat shed, um, which are in you know, various states of disrepair after I guess the uh, 
the Australian Army, who I think were based here uh, really through through to the early 2000s when they left, and the Sydney Harbour Federation Trust are doing some restoration work on that as part of it. We had to do some DA some DA approvals, including um, some ecological assessments out in Chowder Bay, um, and Nina Schaefer. Did, did some of that that, um, that that ecological assessment work for us and put some cameras into the bay to record the number of fish that, that they saw over periods of time. Um, and I, was ast- I read the report yesterday, I was astounded. There was, I want to say that there was 50 unique identified species identified with only a few, within only a few hours. You know, we're in one of the busiest harbours in the world. It's crazy. Absolutely right. Well, we, uh, one of the greatest things we do at UTS is we bring the stu- fishery students out just for a simple overnight uh, on on the grounds here at Sims, and we put out little fish trap light traps at night. But we also have them swimming around under the dock yep. with their cameras these days. And yeah, we easily record thirty species, um, and, and fifty doesn't surprise me at all. Um, and that's just during the day. And other things come out at night, cardinal fishes and things you don't see during the day. So yeah. I, I believe that. <laughs> yeah, just that I, I, I'm, I'm amazed, and you know, given my background's not in, in, I guess, marine science, it's you know the, the diversity, you know, the biological diversity we have, you know, just I mean, if I look out the, the sort of window, and if I took Bradley's headland out of the way, I can see the CBD is probably, you know, maybe less than two kilometres as the as the crow flies, um, and, and yeah, I mean, not only that, you know, that same area is home to a, to a really interesting uh, group of, um, I'm not really sure if they're Australian fur seals or long nose seals. But they're beautiful animals, and obviously there's quite a lot of fish there because they seem pretty fat. Yeah, well, uh, one of our projects we do is, um, which links with uh, Project Restore, I think we're going to talk about in a minute, is with the Opera House. And so we have small artificial reefs, so we get to swim around and have a look around that area. Now, that is further upstream, further up harbour than here. And yes, it's more like an estuary, and, and the water quality is not as good, but it's surprising. We've seen butterfly fish there. You know all the usual suspects, but you know quite, quite remarkable, and occasionally a seal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and that's a, a really good segue, Dave. I mean, one of the things that you know, one of our, our big you know um, flagship pro programs here is, is Project Restore, where we're looking to uh, use ecological engineering to to restore um, parts or rehabilitate parts of the harbour using a variety of technologies. And you know, your area of expertise in that is we're building artificial uh, fish habitats that we're locating through various sites in the harbour. Do you want to tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, well, I'm pretty excited to be part of Project Restore. I mean, the harbour, as we've already said, is magnificent. Uh, uh, huge numbers of species, and not just fish, but all sorts of uh, interesting uh, plants and animals live in the harbour but of course like any urban harbour and there's millions of people live around here um, there are issues and one of them is stormwater runoff um, and one of the, another one is dredging and, and seawalls and things like that so while it, it's uh, there's a whole um, whole agenda to improve water quality etc the habitats that have been lost particularly things like rocky reefs and, and that sort of thing uh, seagrasses um, one approach that, that we're adopting here is to restore some of those habitats, um, maybe if not to their former glory, at least to get, make them more amenable to things like fish. Fish, small fish particularly, need crevices and, and cracks and hidey holes that have been lost through, through urbanisation. So the project, one of the aspects of the project, we're adding small purpose-built reef structures on on and adjacent to these, these natural existing reefs to increase uh, diversity. And you know we've got some you know I guess early results from from uh, you know a number of, of uh, fish pods that were previously installed at sites around the harbour. Where, but based on some of that information, we're also you know, evolving the design of 
of these artificial roofs, you know, as, as we move forward to optimise those, do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, how your thinking is changing in, in the design of these? Yeah, well, the, the sort of the separate to this project work at the Opera House um, was interesting in many ways. And we, we uh, worked with uh, Alex Goh, a designer, Reef Design Lab, who's fantastic, and came up with a design of the reefs which were ended up being made of stainless steel, a sort of circular stainless steel rods, in, uh, not like a, an empty sphere of these rods that would be uh, sat on a very strong concrete bottom. And the idea was they would encrust um, just increasing shelter for potential uh, species of fish that might, might occur there. And that indeed happened. It took a little bit of a long time for them to encrust properly, but we're quite excited to report about five or six species of fish at the sites we put them compared to other sites that, that wouldn't have been there otherwise. One of which, of course, was um, the endangered white seahorse, uh, and so it was quite exciting to find them using those structures. But it, notwithstanding that, we felt we could do a slightly you know, more advanced design, or I guess the, the next generation of design, uh, with again with Alex, uh, would be something that looked a little more reefy at the beginning. So uh, pressed concrete with lots of little crevices and things, environmental concrete that he uses, um, and that way we wouldn't necessarily have to wait for them to encrust with, with sponges and kelp, which they would do. Things would get moving a little quicker, so we'll probably go somewhere along those lines at the sites where we're earmarked for restoration. Yeah, we're really looking forward to seeing some of the, I guess, the uh, the ecological and biodiversity uh, studies that come out of that and just see what kind of a difference they're making um, you know, th- through through that period. And I guess, you know, Dave, you just touched on it. You know, one of the things was that, you know, um, the, the white seahorse, um, you know, and so we're not just doing, I guess, ecological um, restoration within the harbour. We're also looking at replenishing some some uh, some stocks of, in this case, an endangered, I mean, one of two endangered seahorse species uh, globally. Um, and your PhD student, Mitch Brennan, is is, uh, is leading that here at Sims. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about, about the seahorse program? Yeah, so backing up slightly from that, I mean, our lab is uh, very interested in this whole group of fish called the Signathids. Basically, those fish that have the long pointy snouts, and that includes the sea dragons, which are a beautiful um, group that are endemic to southern Australia worldwide, um, seahorses, and also pipe fishes and pipe horses. So I'm uh, the uh, sea dragon representative on the IUCN red list group. Um, and so one of the slightly embarrassing things is of all the 50 or so seahorses in the world, only two are on the endangered list. One's in South Africa and we've got the other one. So, and that being the white seahorse. And so uh, I'm pretty excited to be part of the whole effort to restore that animal to its former glory. Um, part of which is a really key bit of the, the work being done here at Sims with my student Mitchell, as you mentioned. Yeah, really exciting. I guess you know the question I have, you know, given that you know we are seeing, I guess you know the harbour, um, you know the the water, the water's cleaner. You know, there's we we'll probably talk a little bit about you know what we're seeing. You know, it's just as natural observations of, of the harbour and the site over sort of the last few decades. But you know, by, by all uh, you know apparent measures, you know the water quality is increasing, but we're still continuing to have this die off of of uh, of these native seahorses. You know, what's been driving, I guess, you know their yeah, their, their, their decline? Well, um, they uh, really utilise habitat that's being lost in estuary. So, Posidonia seagrass, an example, sponges, these sort of natural habitats are you know, quite scarce um, in Sydney. Um, and in Port Stephens, about 150 kilometres to the north, which is another stronghold, 
have had some horrible sand inundation. So a lot of that beautiful harbour has been buried by moving sand, which could well be due to us tampering with the foreshore, putting different groins and, and, and levees and things like that in. But it's been quite a disaster. That's been a major loss up there. And in Sydney, of course, we've lost uh, quite a few seagrasses and that sort of thing. Having said that, the, the uh, seahorses themselves are really a, a great one to restore because uh, we can actually breed them quite easily in aquaria and so potentially um, reintroduce them onto not just sea, seagrasses, but they also do fairly well on things like swim nets and other structures. Yeah, so it's been exciting time for, uh, for us here at, at Sims. We've got uh, about a little bit over 300 uh, juveniles that are ready for release in the next few weeks. Uh, and I think everyone's going to be you know, excited not only to see them you know, leave the aquarium, um, but, but you know, be, to be returned to their, their natural habitat and, and you know, certainly out in the beautiful Chatter Bay. So it's a super exciting thing to be part of. Yeah, well, it'll be mixed feelings for, for Dad Mitchell, who's yeah. been, uh, really, it's a labour of love. I mean, him and my honour student, Courtney, and, and uh, volunteer Diego in particular, and the Sim staff in general have been fantastic because these animals, once you have husbandry and, and uh, control of these animals, you've got to look after them and they eat a lot of food, <laughs> live food, and it has to be three times or whatever per day for, for months and months. So they've really done a wonderful job getting these animals up to peak condition. They've tagged them and hopefully in about a week or so they'll be popped out and we'll follow their progress. Yeah, I think it's like, you know, that's probably the, the, the second part of it, which is not only you know, the, the science behind the husbandry and, and optimising conditions to, to improve um, I, I guess you know their, their survival rates you know through to a release, but you know being able to monitor them once they're back into that that natural environment and and you know being able to assess you know some of the controls that I know the guys have worked on. Um, you know, Dave, can you talk, tell us? You know, so all the all the seahorses have been tagged. You know, how can people get involved in in, in that monitoring over the next you know six, twelve, and, and beyond months? Well, one of the key features of this that's quite exciting is this citizen, what we call citizen science engagement. Now, citizen science a decade ago wouldn't have been spoken of much by scientists, but it's really come of age, and, and uh, Sydney is really a global centre for this. Now, by that I mean quite often people who would get in the water as amateurs, they might be divers or swimmers or snorkelers, and there's various groups. Um, there's UIG divers, viz divers, and, and these online Facebook groups where people can communicate what they see underwater. Um, and the area just adjacent to Sims is one of the favourites for, for underwater photographers and things like that. So um, we're going to be engaging more and more with people once we put the animals out onto the structures. We'll, there'll be lots of publicity and people can go and have a look at them and maybe report when they see a tagged animal and where they saw it. So that'll really help uh, us understand what's going to happen to the animals once released. Yeah, I mean, that, and, and, and look, yeah, that, I think that's the, you know, it's easy to lose sight of that part. You know, you breed the animals, you replenish stocks and you leave them, but, but the, you know, the real science to happen is, is you know, having a look at you know, how they, they fare over, you know, I think their life their lifetime is you know, five or six years. And they can live up to that long. Well, yeah. the, the we, one batch that we, we popped out a few years ago, um, we quite low survivorship, but a lot higher than, than if they weren't. We didn't do this. And after about a year or so, we found some pregnant males we tagged. So that suggests they're actually really um, sort of contributing to the local populations. Now, it has to be remembered that, that you know, popping animals out in the environment is only part of the story. You've got to improve the environment as well. Yep. So, so studies that, that others and us are doing through Sims, uh, replenishing Posidonia seagrass beds and, and things like that. And watching water quality are all part of the part of the, the gamut of things to keep this this endangered species back from the brink i guess you'd say yeah like, um, you know, it's a really good insight uh, dave um 
I guess, you know, I, didn't, well, I wasn't going to age you, you know, previously, and, you know, but you did mention that, that, you know, you had a turning point in your career or your, your view on marine studies and science in 1971, which is, that was a very good year, as the year I was born. Um, but, but, you know, 50 or so years of, of you know, being you know, that intimately, you know, connected to the marine environment, you know, what have you seen change over that period of time? Because it's, you know, I think, you know, learning more about, about you know, how we've viewed change and, and you know areas of focus and study and you know what we got right what we got wrong is a really important reflection yeah things have changed and i must admit sometimes uh, you know you look back and you think well what really has changed and, and you know some things are better some things are worse as you already mentioned places like sydney harbour the, the water quality has changed tremendously um and uh, you know up, upstream we had uh the surface of the water catching a light because of pollutants back in back in the 60s and 70s and of course that doesn't happen now having said that the sediment in estuaries like sydney harbour are still quite toxic and have to be really be looked after so we can't go digging things up but as it stands the water quality and the ability to swim in places like sydney harbour have just shot up alarmingly or dramatically wonderfully i guess you would say uh, on the flip side um, you know, I guess I have noticed um, when you go in the water these days, the number of large predatory fish has, has tumbled, except in these small marine no-take areas, I'd have to say. Um, so we've lost um, some of that capacity for the marine environment. Um, we've seen changes, we've seen invasive species coming in, uh, a species of algae called Calerpa has, has taken root up and down the coast and that's not great because it's displaced some of the seagrasses and some of the animals in them. Um, so it's a bit of a mixed bag at the local level. Um, looking a bit wider afield, of course, we've seen a, you know, a real downturn in the ocean environment over the last decades, directly linked to, there's a lot of us on Earth. There's, you know, Earth's a limited place and there's more and more of us, so we've really got, and Australia really takes a lead in doing the right thing, I think, in many ways. Um, but yeah, so there's been some, some wins and some losers. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's fair to say that, you know, over that period of time, the things we can see, you know, the visible pollutants, you know, have certainly dramatically decreased. But unfortunately, I think the things we can't see, you know, the, the, you know, the ocean is a carbon sink and, you know, thing that, and, you know linked to things like ocean acidification and, you know, uh, you know potential you know, changes in weather patterns, you know, it's, you know, we're starting to see some of the, the, the longer term impacts you know, um, through that area. I guess one, one thing you know, touched on there, David, is a contentious, you know, issue, and, and you know, but I think you know, we, we need to have those conversations, you know, the lack of, you know, large predatory fish, you know, what you've, you know, I know you're in, in, in conversations with government at a number of levels around, around marine parks. It's topical because, you know, the federal government's just declared Macquarie Island as a marine park. Um, you know, what, what role do you think marine parks have to play in, in potential long-term solutions? I think they've got a very important role, and, and as you might guess, um, they're not a panacea, but they shouldn't be ignored either. So we know from really good science, a lot of it done in, in this state of New South Wales, I have to say, um, suggests quite strongly that, that marine parks, particularly the areas where you cannot fish, so we call them no-take or sanctuary zones, punch above their weight. We know that these areas not only preserve fish and other organisms within them, but also because the fish get bigger, have bigger, more babies, those babies then populate the outer areas in a thing we call spillover, which can actually benefit those for biodiversity and also for, for fisheries as well. So that's, uh, you know, that, that's really well known within the scientific community, but I don't think it's as well known in the rest of the community. Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting one, you know, that's unfortunately, you know, the, 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 the science has to inform policy and, and, and the policy, you know, is 
um, you know, takes time to, 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 to evolve and it can be impacted by changing governments and changing views on, on environment. So I guess one of those ones where, you know, hopefully we continue to, uh, you know, to uh, increase our understanding and then, and then, you know, at some point, you know, our, our elected leaders, you know, form views based on, on hard science. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm actually fairly positive at the moment um, in our state that we have a number of leaders, uh, bipartisan uh, type uh, points of view, yep. whereby there's uh, you know, some understanding and some interest in really moving, moving this uh, narrative along a little bit and getting reasonable amounts preserved, uh, but also you know, engaging with the needs of, of ocean users, including fishers. Yeah. Watch your space, I guess, there's been interesting times. <laughs> Um, Dave, a couple of quick last ones, you know, um, the, I guess one of the broad themes in, in, in this podcast is, you know, is it too late? And, and, you know, we talk a lot about hope in terms of, you know, combating, you know, dramatic, you know, a deteriorating environment, you know, and we need to have more than hope. And, you know, what's your view? Is it too late? You know, if, if it's not too late, you know, what should we be doing more of? Well, it can never be too late, so, first of all. And so, yeah, so when you study, and we have quite a few different monitoring programs long term, whether we, we look at coral bleaching and fish uh, up at the Barrier Reef and in the Caribbean, um, the change in sea dragon populations around the coast, um, the, the tropical fish company, all these sorts of things inform us that things are changing. Um, and we know also at the, at the global level that places where humans haven't even been are being impacted by climate change, plastics, these sorts of things. You know, the imprint of humans is everywhere. Um, in fact, they've even called, uh, made a new term up, uh, they call it the Anthropocene, with, with this recognition that, that we've moved on from nature. Um, and that's a bit sad, but there are some wonderful places out there. Australia is so lucky in the marine environment to have you know, amazing environments. Just offshore from Sydney, you can get something that's just spectacular. So there is hope, and I think a lot of uh, us are engaged in what we're calling solution-based ecology. So we're looking at things like Project Restore, which, which can bring valid hope without uh, overblowing the problems, or ignoring the problems, I should say. And so, um, you know, I think, I think there is hope. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of it's beyond science. It's, it's politics and, and social um, imperatives that are going to push us over the line. I mean, the, the science is out. The jury's, the jury's out. We know what needs to be done from that level and what's missing. And so it'll be interesting it's just to see if, if everyone else catches up. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, I, I try not, not to, to flavour the commentary of the podcast too much with personal opinion there, but, you know, one thing I would say is, you know, what gives me hope is, is you know, the changing generational shift in focus, you know, in, in younger generations, you know, to, to have more of a, I guess, connected um, relationship with nature um, and, and wanting to make conscious choices, you know, with the companies they support or the, the leaders they elect or, you know, whatever it might be, but to, to have a positive impact on, on the environment. And I, you know, what gives me hope is, you know, are those younger emerging generations who, who I think will drive profound change for us. Those, and, and also industry. I mean, you know, everything from superannuation and banking to, to alternative energy. There's, there's a real groundswell, I feel, at least in, in the areas that I know, it's for, for improvement, not just governments, you know. So if we all, all get behind that, I think there's a chance that we'll, we'll see some improvement. Good thoughts, Dave. Um, my very far, my very last question before we sort of wrap it up, and I, and I you know, let you get back to, to doing the science, but um, you know, just just one thing at the moment you're listening to, or you're reading, or you're watching that you know is, is having an impact on you. 
That's a, that's a good question. I, I I need to think a bit more about that one. I mean, I'm just trying to trying to think what what I'm what I'm podcasting at the moment. <laughs> I think Succession's the last thing I was watching, and uh, you know, really, um, I, I'm glad science doesn't necessarily work in in that way, uh, in that top down way. I think the good, the wonderful thing about science, I don't think a lot of people realise, is is that the, the camaraderie. Um, whether you're going to a conference or talking to your colleagues, I don't think it happens in many other lines of work where rather than being a competition, it's it's a bit of a synergism. So, you know, so having watched Succession, I think, well, let's not go down that path um, and keep keep the broad communication open. And because that's the beauty of Sims, it's it's a, a meeting place for scientists across institution, which is pretty unique. Uh, and you know, you really feel when you come here that you're actually part of a narrative rather than uh, you know part of a competition. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, again, great insights. It's, you know, one of the things I love to think about is there's great lessons in leadership, you know, all around us. We've just got to take the time to look and it's good leadership and bad leadership and whether it's, you know, fictionalised leadership accounts, you know, certainly saying, hey, we want to be less like that, I think is, you know, coming out of 25 years in the corporate world, you know, I think, you know, this has been a, a very welcome change, you know, for me and watching, you know, people collaborate and work together and, you know, I think a, a far more effective manner that, than, you know, when it is a competition, you have the, the, the friction and the overheads of, you know, of winners and losers. So, you know, I don't think there are winners and losers in terms of our environment. You know, there's, there's only one winner, it's got to be the environment. Agreed, totally. Awesome. Professor Dave Booth, thank you so much for your time today and, uh, you know, look forward to c- continuing our conversations. Thanks a lot, Brett.